subject for the evening talk is uh, taking refuge. Uh, the other evening, Shada mentioned uh, Bodhgaya in uh, India and the uh, ch children that come each day to the temple and for chanting to listen to some uh, teachings with a theme or story uh, to them. And incidentally, we have in uh, Budgaya a school which the Vipassana Dharma community uh, started at about six or seven years ago, and there are 290 children in uh, school. It's uh, the Pragya Vihar school. Pragya means wisdom. Vihar means abiding, the school of an abiding wisdom. And it's for the poorest of the poor, of the children in the small hamlets, small villages in and around Budgaya. And it's survival, it's continuity genuinely depends totally on the kindnesses and the support and generosity of the uh, international Dharma community. And it's, you know, keeping a child in the school is about uh, 40 to $50 a, a year. And people here and other parts of the world kindly ensure for the children uh, continuity. So I remember some years ago, with regard to the taking of uh, refuge, that the abbot of the monastery and the uh, Westerners on the uh, retreat, and the abbot came and the Westerners took the five precepts, just as we did here at the beginning of the retreat, and spoke about the merits of the, the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha, and the uh, Westerners, uh, with the support of the abbot, uh, chanted. And I remember, and so the taking of refuge is the formal language which is used. It says, I take refuge in the Buddha, I take refuge in the Dharma, I take refuge in the Sangha. And after the Westerners had taken refuge and taken the five uh, precepts, the um, abbot turned, turned to me with glee and a glint in his eye and rubbed his hands and said, <laughs> now they've all become Buddhists. And, and so in the traditional, uh, he wasn't serious, by the way, um, <laughs> a little. And <laughs> so in the traditional interpretation, the five precepts and uh, formal taking of refuge and perhaps presenting uh, flowers and incense and offering to uh, monks and nuns is a sign in the classical way of becoming uh, a Buddhist there. And for some, that uh, ceremony and ritual has been transmitted from east to uh, west, and some of the Buddhist traditions, Theravada, Zen, Mahayana, regard it as a very important ceremony and kind of rite of passage or initiation into. And as you know, it's not something which uh, we uh, refer to nor speak to here. But still, nevertheless, what is meant by taking of uh, refuge, what's 
the relevance uh, for us and is in some rather profound way this actually taking place uh, in our uh, lives here but without the, any appendix to it in terms of adding yet one more label to our life as though we haven't got enough already. So I'd like to explore that with you and include in the exploration uh, as well uh, one or two other uh, threads and themes around forms, uh, emptiness, self, not, not self and try to uh, communicate some of that with you. Firstly, just with regard to uh, uh, each, e each one and take uh, the, the Buddha, our uh, awakening, sometimes when we hear the words and what is the inner response which arises for us and therefore always based on experience. So for some, but not for all, hearing the word uh, Buddha will bring immediately from within ourselves an historical association dating back two and a half thousand years and the events of the life of one person who walked on this earth who taught unflaggingly and, and unfailingly uh, the Dharma of liberation, you see, uh, the Buddha and we think of that person from two and a half thousand years ago quite fine and appropriate. Um, others will speak of, and you will hear from teachers and teachings, reference to the Buddha in terms of uh, the Buddha within you. And that gives a certain currentness and present, or realizing the Buddha nature, and therefore a more expansive sense of the Buddha, uh, Buddha nature. All of this is fine and well for those who have within themselves a comfort with the language, comfort with the language as much as anything else. In that I tend as much as possible to uh, make just occasional references to the historical Buddha and what he said and put more priority on the simple English translation of it of awakening, to awaken. And therefore to come out of the sleep of existence, and the sleep of existence is living in selfishness, living in egotism, living in uh, arrogance and aggression, living in fear and anxiety, living in self-deception, self-delusion. So the sleep of existence is when human beings are going from one day to the next in our lives, living in the potency or the uh, habit or the pattern of that. That's the sleep of existence. And with that uh, uh, sleep of uh, existence, there's something to varying strengths and degrees which is decidedly unsatisfactory about it. And so awakening is awakening out of that as much as you and I might have um, a difficult dream during uh, the night and sometimes the very potency of the dream does something with the energy or the body suddenly moves in the night and we suddenly wake out, wake up and we come right out of that dream and we're completely awake and completely alert and we say, God, it was only a dream. And that's the kind of avenue of uh, approach 
which the Dharma takes that as human beings we have the tremendous potential to come out of living in a dream state. All those kind of qualities there are sometimes defined, for those of you who know Dharma practice as well, uh, in the language of the five hindrances of uh, uh, pursuit of uh, constant sensual satisfaction and being compelled and caught up in all of that, negativity and anger, uh, boredom and apathy, the third, restlessness and agitation and anxiety, the fourth, doubt and the fears that accompany doubt as the fifth. Those are the hindrances uh, and in which we find ourselves asleep in life under the influence, the habits and the conditioning and the patterns we're living under the influence of. Therefore, we're asleep. Painfully, dreamlike, but asleep. And teachings and practices, as I said, are to awaken. That uh, awakening is what's being pointed to. Where we have a commitment, we say, I don't want to go on living in, a blind, in this blindness, trapped under the old, called karma, and all of its unsatisfactory influences, when that's a real dedication and commitment for us, then, then we are taking refuge for that. We're making that a real priority uh, in our life, and instead of as, uh, thinking in terms of, uh, as was um, pointed out by one of the teachers, Instead of thinking on the last day, how is my practice going to fit into my life? How, are the how is the Dharma going to fit into my life? In fact, we look and we say, actually, that way of thinking is to perpetuate the sleep already. It's exactly, precisely the other way around. How is my, how is my life going to fit into the Dharma? And we start thinking that way, then it would be less of an appendix feeling of, well, I need to be a little bit more mindful, and if I'm a little bit more mindful, I'm practicing uh, the Dharma. If one's a little bit more mindful, one is practicing sleeping. It's a lot, obviously, a lot more than just that. Obviously. And so there is the process of awakening, and in that process of awakening, it is vital and important that we genuinely check in with ourselves and we ask ourselves, well, in what areas of uh, my life is it clear and obvious to me that I am not awake? What do I need in areas of my life, and sometimes we need to take the particular, what do I need to really wake up to? And it might generate some agitation and uncertainty which we've talked about over the days and one once again has to keep trust and faith with that kind of raising of that question. And it shows that the three gems of existence, the triple gem, the three jewels of existence genuinely matter to us. One is genuinely dedicated and committed to awakening. One is genuinely committed to the Dharma which has only one responsibilities to make it happen. And thirdly, one is genuinely committed to the Sangha, men and women who are, have to share the same commitment. And many, many expressions of it, of which one form, I'll touch on this in a moment, is here. One 
form of it, one manifestation of it, is uh, here. Sometimes with the form, uh, and these things get uh, mentioned uh, a lot, and one of them, one is uh, sometimes people do uh, ask, well, why don't we have more forms in here? And in here, right, in the meditation hall. And those of you who have had exposure and contact to Eastern teachings and uh, some of the uh, teachers from the uh, East um, may be aware of it. So, as an example, what comes to mind from uh, my exposure, these things um, with uh, uh, Zen, uh, quite often in classical teachings, one will have the regularity of people uh, uh, bowing and thereby, in that form, people paying respect uh, to each other. And it's not unusual, after a, a sitting, or at the beginning of a sitting, one bows to others, one bows to the place where one was uh, meditating, and it's um, uh, a thoughtful, caring, uh, reverential ritual, or, or whatever, and it can express a lot of... Uh, Humility. I remember when I stayed in the Korean Zen monastery uh, many uh, years ago. It was quite lovely as we walked past each other uh, in the monastery in the hills that monks and nuns would bow to each other as a gesture of thoughtfulness. In the Tibetan tradition, one might have when the uh, Rinpoche, the teacher, comes in, people might well, often do, certainly in Dharamsala, a full length, just room, full length uh, prostration as uh, he, uh, he, he comes in and sits down, and it's another form of uh, devotion, paying respect, a, a bowing uh, form there. And other, where the teacher comes in, if everybody's standing, everybody sits down to ensure that their head is lower, etc. All these typical uh, uh, Eastern forms, and as well as um, chanting, as well, it's another form in which people express something which they appreciate and, and benefit from. On a retreat like this, one is pretty well starved of, uh, of uh, all, all of that. In, in all of that, the priority can work very well for some people, but always, of course, the priority here is rather exclusively, maybe a little narrowly, on uh, the Dharma of the practice, on awakening, on, on the Sangha of silence. And in that respect, we, every meditation, we're bowing to the Dharma, we're bowing to the awakening, and we're bowing to the Sangha that shares the silence together. Because some do feel, and it's been said to me today in the group, do feel um, uncomfortable with forms which appear to be imported and sometimes don't feel quite so, for some, quite so real. Others love the form and uh, uh, feel it's a pity that people like uh, ourselves don't bring in more forms, don't have more chanting, don't have more uh, bowing, uh, uh, etc. All of this is whether we appreciate such forms or whether it's not our uh, cup of tea, that in either case the relationship matters with the form. The relationship matters. And 
the relationship can be with the form and appreciate it. The relationship can be one of uh, just an equanimity, oh, it's just a form. And the relationship can be one of um, not wishing to use, nor employ, nor uh, uh, connect with, or whatever. And when one of the local teachers, Howie Cohen, as an example, on the very last evening of the retreat on the East Coast, uh, did some uh, 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 chanting, including Triple Gem and uh, other chants. Um, I'm sure many people loved it and appreciate it, but it didn't stop one or two people writing a, a, a little note uh, to myself, wondering if the rot had set in. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, again, with the expressions of form, the uh, manifestations of it, that, uh, which it hasn't, the rot that is, that <laughs> in the connection with the forms, to see for ourselves, to see, sorry, see for ourselves, and, and therefore some will come into situations like this one, and know that we treat and hold that very, very lightly, and others will say, well, more form, important for me, and therefore decide and make decisions appropriately or that part of Dharma teachings and practice. In Dharma, and in the uh, uh, application uh, of, of Dharma, one of the things which is quite vital in any kind of ongoing uh, investigation uh, into it, and it's, as I say, life got to fit into it, the tendency here is to actually s stop or slow down or forget before completion. And that easily happens. And the way of the mind is, there may be an a issue which is arising, and one looks at the issue and says to oneself, I have a tendency with regard to this. I have noticed this inside of myself uh, with uh, frequency, and it deserves addressing as much awareness from inside and outside to bring to bear on it to take it out. And one may have, relatively short term, some sense of the fading of it. It may be going cool like a fire which is just blown out, but there's still heat there and it doesn't take much for it to be fanned in a new circumstance. And therefore it's not unlikely and that one goes from taking the heat out, then it, as I say, there's a grace period with the heat and then it takes very little and it fa is fanned up again. One has feelings of vulnerable around being rejected and that can be internalized, one of the most common problems in the culture, one starts rejecting oneself. It's a habit, not being good enough in anything that we connect with or do or any kind of role, whatever, the not being good enough arises. And we attend to that, as some of you, a number of you in fact, have been doing here over the days, and one sees that there, that, that there are things with one's being which one can appreciate. That despite the old pattern, leaning across, putting self and criticism together, 
the two fastening together, that it's no true statement of the nature of one's being. It's just old pattern, linking with self, sticking together, and giving the impression of a reality about oneself. And sometimes we've noticed that going on. We haven't invested. We faded in that, that. There's been a fading of the self with its negativity about oneself, the put down, the criticism, I'm not good enough, and all that goes along with it. And maybe some appreciation begins to come naturally or in a cultivated way from within. So initially, we may turn our attention to our inner being and we say to ourselves, you know, this negative pattern is uh, uh, unfair, untrue, it's undermining, it reduces the lack of uh, one's present and comfort and contentment of being. It's, it seems to eat into everything which is lovely within. And we then turn, turn our attention to what genuinely heart and mind can and does appreciate. And one acknowledges one's kindnesses in life, one acknowledges one's uh, generosities in life, one's care, one's presence, one's commitment to uh, awakening, to the Dharma, to the Sangha, and all of that. And sometimes initially it may seem a little theoretical, a little mental. But keeping patience with it, from the mental, it can become heartful. That from within ourself, within our being, warm feelings for one's life, for one's life, actually begin to flow through more easily. And it can help to show us clearly, essentially, we are okay. That's all. To show us essentially, as a human being, living our life, day by day, essentially, fundamentally, we're okay. And that we don't have to accept, nor believe, nor identify, nor invest, nor support the self and criticism linchpin together. We just see it as a bizarre aberration with no inherent truth in it whatsoever. And that can be clear to us. But if, as I point out, there is still some heat there. And we are not vigilant on just this major area of self and criticism running together, self and resentment towards oneself, or put down of oneself. If we are not clear about that, it will only take one phone call, one letter, one um, uh, accusation, and within moments, the fire can be fueled again, one identifies with it again, and one is exactly back, as it were, where one started. And one thinks to oneself, I've got all that practice of learning to know that one is a human being and to be human is to be okay, and essentially it's the truth of, of that, to be steady with that. And then, good, where did it get me? It's just, just one thing, I'm thrown off balance, and I'm once again doing what I've always done, which is laying a number on myself. And therefore I say, in awakening out of that particular pattern, which would transform our whole relationship to existence, if this one was, the heat went out of it, 
and nothing left to fuel it would require a tremendous vigilance. It would be learning to acknowledge and appreciate what's within, the awareness of the pattern, not believing with it, not enforcing it, and particularly in situations where we have not always some kind of notification, some advance indication that something's going to be difficult with another person. Whoever it might be, blood person, someone we know, it might be a friend, an employer, an employee, or whoever it might be that matters to us and we know in some way or other, then in the prior moments or times to that, every drop of awareness that we have, every firmness of mind, every steadfastness, every reminder, be steady, be present, be relaxed, don't fight, be with the moment, whatever, and bring that to it so that we actually know and we sense and feel its words passing through the air. We actually know and feel that even with an incredible verbal abuse that might be laid upon us, we can know it as that. We can know the uh, unpleasantness that arises from the body, of course, and from the mind and heart there. And if we're steady and clear with it, we will be able to hear if there's anything we need to know to work with. Anything, if there's some truth in the aggression, some truth in the anger, and we'll be able, if we're clear, the mind, the depth of the mind, will be able to distinguish and discern, as the Buddha said, discriminate, he said, that which is true and useful from that which is a projection, which is uh, brutal, which is arrogant, which is cruel, which is harmful, which is unkind. And if we can know what's true and useful, it cannot possibly feed that fire of self-blame, self-condemnation, self-judgment and the lack of self-worth in all of its forms. If the self, if the self comes out of that pattern, it cools out, truly cools out, it's a great awakening already. We really would have come out of one of the most deceitful and painful formations of the self. The self-criticism, self-blame, self-attack, self... Uh, where so often our, the biggest critics in life is the one that we do on ourselves. Often not being able to compare with what others say as what thoughts we can do upon ourselves. And therefore we say, if that's a, something which is, affects the quality of the inner life, okay, let's, let's attend to that. Let's say it in a context, of course. And the context in which it's being said is in relationship to the necessity, possibly for periods and times in our life, to really focus on a particular, as you and I have been doing over these days, focusing on a particular as a real key for insight, understanding, and if it's problematic, cooling out. There is much too much of a tendency in the Sangha, in the community, to think that by sitting daily and watching one's breath, or 
knee sensations or wandering mind, that that of and in itself should be able to be a form to be able to look after the totality of the day. There's much too much investment in that form. For some, of course, it's incredibly valuable. Of course, it, the very sitting form can act as a barometer of our day-to-day -day life. But, I still say, sometimes when I'm looking for awakening and all that's implied in it, we have to be able to focus. And there are some areas in our life which will have become extremely clear to us over the days that we can't go on in a kind of half-hearted way just dealing with something as best we can when it comes up. We'll just limp through existence with that kind of formula for awakening. In other words, when we feel okay, when that irritation, that problem, that role, that hassle, that whatever it is, isn't in our focus of attention, it still requires reflection, skillfulness, some thought about ways of working, how one can polish and refine and develop and cultivate. And so when we attend to something which the self, I and the my, repeatedly and unsatisfactorily associates with, whether it's present or absent, okay, let's be vigilant about it. Not just wait around, kind of relieved that it's not coming up today. <laughs> because in that kind of relief, in that way, it will come up like a rocket. <laughs> Sooner or later, and one will have no resources left to deal with it. Why? We haven't had the vigilance that we need. One of them, in the Dharma of uh, life, of course, and you have, some of you have spoken about uh, here, is the formation of movement of the inner life, and one of its movements, of course, is in and around fear. I spoke a little bit about it uh, yesterday evening with you in terms of going from the known into the unknown to the uh, known. One of the sure signs that f we're there's fear and we're afraid, not only in course of the sensations which arise, but if it rises with enough strength, it impacts on the mind, meaning, meaning on thinking life here. And one of the outcomes of it is doubt. and how quickly we identify with the doubt. We're afraid of something. The sensation, or the memory, or the interaction with the person comes in the moment. It, it generates enough inside of us, sometimes as a sensation, sometimes we hardly know it's a, a fear, because we hardly feel a sensation, the habit can be that strong, but it produces doubt. And then the doubt begins to determine what we do. Whether we stay, whether we go, whether this, that and the other. And often we miss that the, that doubt 
in that painful and unsatisfactory, confusing way, has, is an outcome of fear. It's, it has a relationship to fear. And when that happens, the doubt can just run anywhere. So if, in the arising of a difficulty, and then the, and some fear, oh, it might repeat itself, or it might come again, or whatever, the fear arises, and since the doubt can run anywhere, if something is important to you, it will go there. It will go to your role, it will go to your relationship, it will go to your practice, it will go to the Dharma, it will go to the Sangha, it, it will go to the doubt in the potential to be awakened, or whatever. And somehow, we might say, oh, it's just fear arising, because we hear the mantra, it's just fear arising. And when it enters into the field of thought, called doubt, we believe it. We can give incredible authority. Oh, this practice isn't working for me. What good is the Dharma to me? Look, at, look around me. It hasn't, obviously hasn't done anybody any good. Oh, what, 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 uh, uh, whatever it might be. And this, this practice, I'm not getting anything out, out of it. I'm not ready. I'm too young. I'm too old. I'm too fat. I'm too thin. I'm oh, whatever it might be. And the movement's gone on. And we invest, in, invest is polite, we infect it with authority. Like a virus we give the doubt or, or authority. And we forget to track the movement that's gone on prior and to see the, the wave of doubt that's going on is an outcome. It's an outcome of some events which we have slept through before didn't notice, didn't attend to, didn't connect with, didn't see the process of, and in the very blindness, which we didn't take because we were sleepwalking through that period of time, then the doubt comes in and it runs over anything which matters to us. Anything which matters to us. Can we see there is just that movement going on in relationship and that movement is just a movement. If, as I said earlier, we are vigilant, if we are willing to focus on things which you and I know we need to focus on, and if we stay steady with it, if we use the resources of the Sangha, the resources of the Dharma and the love for living an uh, awakened uh, life, if we use all of that, one of the clear demonstrations of it, as many of you know very well here, that the influence of doubt gets less and less. That there is enough awareness and understanding in our being, enough awareness and understanding, even in the greatest difficulties of life, teachings and practices and all that we, you and I share and explore, uh, together has something valid about it. it gen it's genuine. It's authentic. And it stayed from one generation of men and women because men and women have realized the natural, straightforward authenticity of it. To be awake, 
to life, to be present to life, to work with the existence, to look into it. In the uh, old text of the Buddha, to his, uh, uh, when, when he spoke of the three gems of existence, Buddha, Dharma, uh, Sangha, he speaks with, um, as one might expect, with uh, greater enthusiasm of, for all three and of the uh, benefits of association with all three and the sustaining of contact and communication with all, th all, all three. And I, I say to, to that, all of that, got nothing to me, it's got nothing to do with being a Buddhist or, uh, and having labels and uh, B Buddha images and all of that. And I've said many, many, many times the best thing about Buddha images, yeah, well, two things. Uh, one is it's a good reminder for a straight back in the sitting. And the, and, uh, the uh, other is to appreciate the, uh, the artwork that's uh, uh, gone, in, gone into it. And anything more than that is, I think, a step too far. But others have a different kind of response and uh, appreciation and sometimes, of course, a lovely and beautiful reminder for some, some people of, um, of, uh, of, of, of the Dharma for, for awakening. But as we know, as with people who have these uh, lovely meditation cushions uh, in, their, in their home, they can become an icon, they can become a memory or, what, or whatever. And <laughs> And, and gradually the, the dust gathers uh, uh, on, on them and every springtime one gets out the uh, vacuum cleaner with a determination that from next year one will use it. So sometimes you're looking at it there in uh, uh, situations like that. But as I say in the uh, reflecting, so when... In sometimes in uncertain or difficult times or wavering times that uh, can take place in all of this. What the long-standing advice that monks and nuns received I think still stands and worthy of our attention today. And that is the willingness and the interest to touch upon, if one's going to say everything fits into the three gems of life, to touch upon or to reflect on the importance and the value of what these three areas mean, what the significance of them, of them mean. And I'm sure, without any kind of uh, doubt, we, we recognize deeply in ourselves that unless there is wisdom and compassion on this earth, and that can only come out of humanity, then the earth will slowly but surely slide into being hell. It's already hell in multiple ways for far too many people already. Why? Greed, violence, aggression, fear and hatred and all, all of those things. And teachings and practices and people living with wisdom and compassion as each of us endeavour to do here actually contribute to a steadiness on this earth. All of us are contributing 
to an equanimity in the face of circumstances and endeavouring to keep the earth together. And it matters far more in any expansive and wide open perception than whatever our thoughts tell us. And sometimes one has a sense of the extraordinary responsibility as a human being in this living generation that you and I share to ensure that wisdom and compassion are a constant practice, a constant reminder and a constant outpouring on this earth. And nothing else compares to it. There's nothing else which gets even close to the significance of these two features and manifestations of a human being. And thus, the, in the, the, the three jewels, it's uh, an encouragement and a very strong reminder to us, don't neglect all that you learn. Don't neglect the practices. Don't neglect the commitment because it's for the whole of humanity. Because if we do, if we let it slide, if we water it down, or, or whatever it will be, it just means more and more suffering and yet another inch into hell and towards hellishness for more people. And it's in that kind of light and spirit, I would say, that teachings are, are there. We have spoken as well uh, a lot and not always easy to get the, uh, the balance right with these uh, uh, things, and that is in the area of self and not-self. And it takes a lot of contemplation and meditation upon it. Really, it really, really does. And in speaking of it uh, right now with you, we said, at times, the I, the self, arises. And with the eye and the self ari arises uh, as it does, we notice that two of the strong, distinctive ways that it arises is one is through communication. We interact with other or others and the strength of the eye through demanding, through attraction or aversion, wanting or not wanting, liking and disliking, or whatever it might be, in relationship to another or others, the sense of the eye can be strong. And in that, it's the center of the communication. And sometimes collision, eye to eye, conflict to conflict, which is there. Also, the eye can as it were, awareness or one's life, so to speak, only so to speak, can be in the grip of the eye through something that we're doing. And in the inquiries and many other circumstances, we have spoken and explored what it means knowing that one is in the grip of the eye, such as a pattern, a habit, an addiction, a, a wanting, and if I don't get what I want, then etc. So, either through the movement of doing, or through some form of communication, the presence of I, the self, me and my, can be thick, substantial, and we know it. Supported with fear, supported with aggression, supported with withdrawal and contraction, supported with demand and the extension of reaching out, 
And there is a loss of balance of being, of equanimity in that. So if we're going to track ourselves in life and know what it li- means to genuinely live an awakened life, we will give, as the Buddha said so frequently, tremendous attention to wise and skillful speech. As important as samadhi, as important as effort, as important as mindfulness, etc. We say speech, because in speech they see how much I, I arises and all that can go with it. Similarly, when we're caught up in doing, and the Sangha, his, uh, his, one of its duties, of course, is reminding us where we are getting caught up, finding other ways to work with that. So then, as we have been speaking regularly, what is the significance of not I? We've spoken about not I. And the moments of not I means not being self-preoccupied, either with the doing or with the interaction of trying to stake one's position, I, 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 as I said. Their experiences are expansive experiences of not I. When we know, we look, we're in touch here, and we say, there is nothing whatsoever I am demanding from life. Not demanding anything of myself, but there's no apathy, the I is not in that form, there's no indifference, there's no coldness or whatever, but there is an awareness of acknowledgement, steadiness, uh, which is there, and there's no I. One, let us say, isn't communicating, one isn't demanding on one, anything of oneself in a meditation, one isn't. Uh, 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 pursuing or running after anything. So the I, in that unsatisfactory mode which we look into, means that when that isn't present for us, there is the experience and the quality of experience of not I, me, not self, not me, not mine. That might be one is in the nature and one is just appreciates. In the not I, no demand, self, other, or whatever. In the not I, and in that expansive awareness of the not I, one thing must be clear. There is no coldness, detachment, or alienation whatsoever in that experience. In actual fact, it's precisely the opposite. In the state of not I, well-being comes through the body and cells. In the state of not I, happiness and contentment comes. In the state of not I, friendship comes, which generates itself easily, effortlessly, uh, everywhere. So in the, st- in the state of not I, not me, not I, not self, then the being responds to life in another way, which is naturally expansive. And the lovely and sweet thing about that 